Welcome to this special bonus episode of Fortune Favors the Bold. My name's Matt Schiltz, and I'm one of the producers of this show. Today's episode was recorded live at On Air Fest at the Wythe Hotel in Brooklyn, New York. And as always, it's about money. Season one host, Ashley C. Ford, moderated a discussion about how we talk about money. Even in an era of candid conversations, money's still a taboo topic. Could being more comfortable talking about money lead to more financial literacy? In this episode, we'll hear from Nicole Perkins, co-host of the podcast Thirst Aid Kit, and Stephanie O'Connell, a writer and speaker who specializes in talking to women about how to take control of their money. They talk about their experiences with money, or lack thereof, how money affects us and those around us, and sometimes how we need to ask for more, especially in the freelance and gig economy. So without further ado, Ashley C. Ford. Thank you so much. Um, first of all, giving out big thanks to you all for being here. Just kidding. It doesn't matter. We would have done this anyway. But thank you. <laughs> but thank you for showing up and hanging out. That's fantastic. My name is Ashley Seaford. I am the host of BuzzFeed's Profile. I am a writer. I, I probably do too many things, to be perfectly honest. You probably maybe just saw me do an animal meditation. Why? Because it sounded like fun. That's why I did it. Um, I want to talk to you guys today. We want to talk to you guys today a little bit about talking about money, having those conversations. I am pretty new to talking about money openly. Um, when I was younger, I talked about money a lot, but we were all just talking about how we didn't have it, and that was totally fine. And then you get older, and you're like, wait, wasn't I supposed to have some by now? Maybe I should stop talking about it. And the opposite is actually true. We have to talk about it. Money is an important energy in our lives. We have to talk about money. We have to talk about what's in our accounts. No, I'm just kidding. You don't have to tell me that, but I was going to ask. We have to talk about how we get money, how we spend money, what we know about money, what we don't know about money. Because the more we normalize those conversations, the more I think we'll see people not getting so lost in the muck of financial literacy and finance speak. And then we'll hopefully have less people shut out of money-making opportunities and just conversations about what money means. So I want you guys to say hello to Nicole Perkins, host of Thirst Aid Kit. Hi, everyone. Poet, essayist. You're going to, she, I mean, you think I do a lot? Nicole does a lot. Like, she can do everything. Stephanie O'Connell, who actually is one of the first people who got me to talk about money, though she doesn't know that. She, one of the first time she did her course, I signed up for it. And she didn't know that. And they had a Facebook group and everything. I was part of it. And I was watching these conversations happen because I desperately needed to see those conversations happening. And she was at the forefront of that. Wow. So, yeah. I'm like way flattered. I mean, I'm just saying. Just saying. So the thing that I wanted to start with today was us trying to talk a little bit about our money story in whatever way that means to us. I can start by saying, you know, I was raised by a single mom 
four kids. When I went to college, I'll just say this, because my mom has a really hard time with me describing my childhood as poor, even though we definitely were poor, but we'll talk about that later. Um, but when I went to college and had to fill out the FAFSA, um, I realized that even though I was the oldest of four kids in my house and my mom had no help from anybody else um, financially, uh, my mom had never made more than $36,000 a year. And I was shocked. I had no idea. Granted, first of all, let me explain that I did grow up in Indiana, not like Brooklyn, because we both know that if $36,000 in Brooklyn ain't going nowhere. Uh, but this was in Indiana, and it still wasn't a lot even for Indiana. So that's, those are the circumstances I was raised under. I go to college. I'm super broke like a lot of us were in college. And then I move away after college, still super broke, like a lot of people. And then I start becoming less broke, but I have no idea what to do with my newfound non-brokenness. Because nobody in my family really has any idea how to help me you know, navigate financial literacy and financial moves as a young adult. And I don't have any practice with it. So I did what most millennials of my age would do. I got on the internet and just started trying to piece together what I could. But things didn't really click until I started having conversations with other people who were my age or maybe a little older than me about money and about what I could do with it, how I could get it, what it meant in terms of value, what it didn't mean in terms of value, all of that. But I never would have had that experience without having the conversations. Nicole, would you like to talk a little bit about yours? Sure. Um, my background is kind of similar. Uh, my parents divorced when I was 12, so then it was my mother raising three children, one of whom had special needs. And I didn't realize that we were poor, I guess, um, until, I mean, even though I always had like a reduced lunch ticket or a free lunch ticket, like throughout public school and everything like that, it just, everybody around me did, all, you know, all of um, my friends did. So it didn't really hit me until I was in high school and some friends and I were going to the mall and they wanted to go into the gap. And I, mimicking my mother, because I hear my mother's voice in my head, I'm like, oh, I can't shop in there. It's too expensive. But for them, the gap was like, what? That's just, the gap is fine. Why are you saying the gap is too expensive? Then um, I went to college, got some student loans, of course. And then when I got my first job outside of college, I was I'm from Tennessee, then I was living in New Orleans and Louisiana, so my first job out of college was maybe like $27,000 a year. And my mother told me that that was more than she had ever made. I was like, oh my God. And then again, we're in the South, and this is, and I'm actually Generation X, which no one cares about, I know. But, um, <laughs> we do. We but do. it was still very striking for me to know, you know, and at that time, with this, you know, huge salary, right, of 27000 in New Orleans, I could not afford cable. I was like, I can't afford to buy like a whole, the kind of furniture that I want. I was really like, you know, moaning about this, and my mother just casually drops, this is more than I've ever made. I was like, ugh. And now I, the bulk of my career was in education and working at universities and things like that. And then I quit maybe like three years ago or something like that. I started writing full time. So 
that life has been very interesting as a freelancer. Um, and I don't want to take up too much time right now. We'll come back to that. But freelancing is, again, just kind of like, sure, I'll take this. I won't negotiate. No one taught me how to negotiate salaries. And then, you know, I'm reading all these things like on Twitter and like, you know, people are doing these threads. This is how you should negotiate. And I'm like, what? I didn't even <laughs> know that I could ask, you know, because I'm as a writer and I deal a lot with pop culture. I deal a lot with race, sex and gender. They're just like, here's $200 to talk about your trauma. So, again, I didn't know how to negotiate. So I'm finally learning that as someone who is a bit older. Um, like I said, I'm Generation X. And so I don't often get put in these kinds of discussions because mm -hmm. people think I should know, but I don't know. And it's hard to admit that. And um, one of the reasons that I don't admit that or try to talk about salary and stuff, because I don't want to feel bad that maybe this person is making more than I do or something like that. So I get yeah. it. I get it. Steph? I feel like all these money stories come back to our mothers. Mm. And uh, my, mine starts with my mom, too. So uh, my mom was born the year her parents immigrated to the United States from Ukraine. And her father died a couple years later. So she wound up growing up in poverty in New York City. And she basically lived the American dream. And she got the full ride to a great school. She worked her way up. She she really was able to manifest the dream and then raise me in middle-class privilege. And then by doing that, she wanted to never talk about money because she wanted to protect me from what she experienced. But the problem is, <laughs> once you leave the house, you gotta know something about money if you don't wanna wind up in that same position where she was, granted with more privilege to start, but you know, if you have no tools and language to engage in that conversation and to deal with money when you go out on your own, then you're gonna wind up in that same position. And so, my entire 20s was dealing with that language I had no vocabulary for. It was dealing with 2008, the year I graduated college, which was the recession. And it was dealing with, as you were talking about, freelance income, inconsistent income, uncertain income, not having any kind of benefit structure, um, health insurance, uh, no, nobody handing you that, that packet that you fill out with your HR department, with your 401k plan and, and your PTO and all that stuff that's traditionally comes with a job. So, so often, you know, for, for me and, and for my peers, that's not a reality. And so I was like, man, this is tough. This is really hard. And one day I get this um, huge pain in my mouth and I'm like, oh, what is this? And I never would go to the doctor because I didn't have health insurance. Just a terrible idea, but that, that was the reality. And eventually I couldn't ignore it. So I went to the dentist and they said, you need a dental implant. And they're like, it's like, $2,800 and I just started weeping in the dentist chair and I just felt like wow first of all I don't have this money second of all if I did have the money that's not how I would want to spend it and third of all I hate this feeling I hate this feeling that I am at the mercy of my money and I feel like everything in my life is dictated by what I don't have and the language I don't have around it and I must change this and that was my call to action to engage with money and eventually make money the centerpiece of my career so now I write about money I've written about my own journey I've gone and taken the classes and become a money expert 
and to not only rewrite my own narrative, but to help other people gain a vocabulary and gain a sense of ownership so that they never feel that sense of being at the mercy of their money. This is a question I have for both of you, actually, because I, I was thinking about um, sort of our beginnings. I think with everybody with money, there's always an encounter that suddenly makes you very aware of where you stand class-wise, whether that be middle class, upper class, wealthy, working class, living in poverty, whatever it is. You have a moment where suddenly you are very aware that you are living in a certain place and that there's something you either don't have access to or there's something the people around you don't have access to. And I think the first time I realized that I was maybe living in a situation, um, not necessarily just in my home life, but um, in my community. Because also, free reduced lunch kid, but that was everybody where I lived. It wasn't a big deal at my school. My high school, middle school, and elementary school were around 75% of the student population was on free or reduced lunch. So there was really no shame or oddness in it because it was everybody. I didn't realize that was different until I got put in gifted classes. They put me in gifted classes and eventually they turned the gifted classes into busing me to a different school um, twice a week. And it wasn't until I went to that other school that I was like, oh my God. Like I walked into these other kids' school and I was like, what the? They got computers in the classroom? Like, I'm looking in the doors like, what is happening? Like, I thought schools like that only existed on TV. I had never seen anything like that. And even then, I was just like, yeah, I'm here. Like, it wasn't like I was feeling any way about myself in that situation. I didn't have that feeling until the first day I had to go get lunch at that school. And the lunch ladies did not know how to process my lunch because I was free and reduced lunch. And they did that. Not only did they not know how to process my lunch in order for me to eat, but they all got together and had to go in the back and get a big red binder and stopped the whole lunch line so that they could go through this red binder and see what the procedure was when processing a free or reduced lunch for a kid. Because they didn't, they had never done it before. They didn't even know how to do it. And at my school, 75% of the kids were on it. And I remember standing there with my tray as this went on and on and on and feeling smaller and smaller and smaller. And I think that was the first time that I felt, oh my God, like I don't have the same access that these kids have. Like this lunch lady looking at me doesn't see me the way she sees the rest of the kids. I probably had similar experiences um, as a child growing up, but the thing that stands out to me to answer your question is my second attempt at uh, grad school. My first attempt was fine. I was a TA, so like it was paid for and everything, but I just didn't like the program that I was in. And um, so I left, worked for a while, and then I went back to grad school and changed the program. Um, my first program was just a strict MA to PhD English literature kind of thing, but I wanted to write. And so the second time I went to an MFA program, Master of Fine Arts program, and I'd written a poem 
and I'd referenced Sally Mae in the poem, and no one in the classroom knew who or what Sally Mae was. And, you know, um, one of the students asked, oh, who's Sally Mae? Is that your aunt? And... And I just kind of sat there because I'm thinking somebody else is going to answer for me, right? Because, you know, when you're workshopping a piece, the author is not supposed to speak. So I'm just kind of waiting for other people to respond. And nobody, everyone was looking at me blankly. And so finally I had to say, Sally Mae is like your student loan, like the corporation, whatever. All And I explained all this stuff. And they were just like, oh, they had no idea about students taking out loans in order to go to school. It was so foreign to them. And I was like, I am on a different planet right now. I don't know. Because that's all that my friends were talking about was Sally Mae from college or Sally Mae from grad school, whatever, just whatever loans. And I just knew I was just someplace strange for me. And I did not know what that meant for the rest of my experience in this grad school. And then also it's just kind of hard because the intersection of race and class is just so... Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just very tight and it's hard to uh, separate them sometimes. So those younger experiences that I was having, because I was also bused to a, a fancy neighborhood and, right. you know, that kind of stuff when I was kid, a kid. Um, it's hard to get away from that. So I would be in these classrooms and I remember one time I brought my own lunch. I don't know why. But I brought my own lunch, and it was uh, peanut butter and jelly, but on a hot dog bun, because we had run out of regular bread. And, I mean, the horrified looks on my friends' faces, you know. It was just just bread. It's just bread. It's It's fine. Like, I eat this all the time. Like, I would eat the hot dog bun without anything on it. (laughs) You know, it's just just bread. bread. Um, But, yeah, so that, but that grad school moment of who is Sally Mae? Is that your aunt? That's, Yeah. Yeah, I don't have anything that wild. I grew up in uh, the public school system, and my parents moved when we got to middle school so that we'd be in a a better system. So we wound up being in this town where everyone's means were greater than ours. Even though my parents were middle class, Mm -hmm. these people were way above that so like the worst thing that happened to me is not bad Mm -hmm. but it's like i'm the only one who took the bus to school in my town like for four years after after being 15 every single kid in that town had a car or would get a ride with someone i was the only person on the bus and i was like this is ridiculous and honestly i was just like i wasn't feeling bad about myself i was like what is wrong with these parents (laughs) (laughs) i love that i love that we rode the bus hard we rode rode the bus everywhere the bus was the bus was our friend yes like and even the people who had cars sometimes was like no i gotta take the bus today the car ain't (laughs) it ain't doing the right thing so this is the next thing Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. And when did you, like, at what point did it even begin to feel like you might be in control of your financial life? Because I know for me, I felt out of control from, like, I went to college. I'm, like, looking at my student loans and stuff. I'm like, is is this normal? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, all right. You know what I mean? Like, that was pretty much it. Because I had nothing to, like, really guide me. I didn't start feeling in control of my financial life until I lived in New York for two years. And I've only, I haven't even lived here five years yet. 
So know that this is not that long ago. <laughs> not that long ago at all. But that's how long it took for me to feel like I'm making decisions that actually affect my financial life versus I'm constantly reacting to financial life. And that's a huge thing because like the one thing that I've learned in like the change in socioeconomic situation is that the real privilege of being financially stable is being able to plan long term. And not just long term in terms of like, like I'm not talking about having like a 10 year fund. I'm talking about even having like knowing that you have enough in your account that if something happened right now, you would be able to cover your rent, you know, at the very least. So many people don't have that. That's very normal. And that was me for like ever until like two years ago. And the thing that I've realized is that if you don't have any practice with long term planning, and you can't really get that kind of practice when you're in survival mode. Like, you really just can't. Up until the point that you get financially stable, you have had no practice with the skills that would actually teach you what to do. And people always do that. You know, like, they act like the basketball star, the pop star, whatever, got a bunch of money, and then they lost it all. What happened? They stupid. And it's like, what happened is they didn't know what to do, and everybody just assumed because they had the money, they'd figure it out. That's what happened. And I think for me, like, that was the huge thing where I started feeling in control was right after I sold my book. Right after I sold my book and I got that first advance check. Mmm. Delicious. It was super delicious. I was scared to cash it because I thought the people at the bank was going to have me arrested. I'm not kidding. And not because it's like, oh, man, this hook is so huge, but just because I had never cash the check of that, you know, whatever. Like, most of it went to taxes anyway, don't worry. But, <laughs> but I had never cashed a check of that size. I was terrified. I was absolutely terrified. And I didn't know what to do. And I didn't even know that I didn't know what to do until the money was there. And that's when I realized I don't even know where to start with this and being financially stable. I don't think I've ever been financially stable to that point where I could do very much long-term planning. Um, part of that is because I think uh, my life has been where I've just moved maybe every two to four years also. Um, and again, I'm just like, I don't want to buy anything too nice because who knows where I'm going to be next year, you know, that kind of thing, like for my apartment and stuff. But maybe... Maybe last year. Last year, I was doing the podcast, Thursday Kit, which is a podcast about pop culture and desire. It's um, so good. <laughs> it's so uh, good. I was doing that, and so I had, you know, a consistent flow of incoming money. I was also freelancing, picking up other things. So I was able to do stuff like pay my mom's cable bill, which is ridiculous. Um, now, every black, listen, every black person I know... And I'm not saying y'all not the same. Y'all could be absolutely the same, but I don't know all of y'all. But every black person I know, that's the goal. Yeah. What can I do to help my mama? Yeah. Like, how do I pay my mama's cable bill? Yeah. How do I get my mama a house? How do I get my mama a car? How do I just make sure my mama ain't got to worry no more? Like, that is a huge thing. A so huge I, thing. Yeah, so I have access to my mom's uh, cable, you know, like, 
to look up because she has like HBO and all that kind of stuff. So every time I would log in to look at something on HBO or whatever, I would see that she had fallen behind on her bill. And so it was like mounting. And I know that stress, right, when the bill just keeps going and you just pay just enough to keep it from being disconnected and all this kind of stuff. Because my mother is, uh, she's kind of where I get the pop culture thing from because she cannot go to sleep without a TV on at all. So I'm like, you know, I'm using her login to do stuff that's helpful for my job. The least I can do is pay this cable bill. And so I did it. Well, first I texted her to make sure that she didn't have it on like an automatic thing or something because I didn't want to pay it and then she still get charged. Of course she did not. So I went online, paid it, and then I called her and I was like, don't worry about this for this month or whatever. I went ahead and took care of it. And she was just like, oh, my God, how did you do that? You know, did you, know, did you call them? I'm, no, Mama, you can go online now. <laughs> you know, I have right. to like, explain this um, as well. And then um, so last year doing that and maybe obviously a few years ago, being able to put stuff where you can do automatic payments and feel and trust that when they pull the payment, it's not going to result in, yes, it's not going to result in an overdraft. That's the dream. Yeah. That's the dream. (laughs) I honestly honestly wish I could do that for all of my bills because I Mm -hmm. don't want to have to think about it. Me neither. I don't want to have to think about paying the bills because as soon as I think, you know, I have to pay this out, I, I tense up and I'm just like. Right. So you're talking about this idea of feeling in control, and I think that's such an important insight. And I think for me, what I found is that financial control can happen in stages. And I think we need to think of it in stages because it's, like you said, it's too overwhelming to feel like you have to know everything all at once. And what we can do is start with where we are. And when we are where we are, the only thing we can really control sometimes is just whether or not we look at the numbers. That's the first thing. Where do I stand? What do I own? What do I owe? Where is my money coming in? Where is my money going out? I might not feel a lot of control over all the elements that influence that, but I can control if I write it down, if I look at it, if I track it. And that is the first thing I tell people is that's where you can find that first step no matter where you're starting from. And then the control starts to build from there because you can make so much more informed decisions about where you're heading if you know where you're starting from. You can't start plotting a a course on a map without the you are here point. You need an end goal and you need a you are here point and you can't start making progress until you know both of those. So that was my first step and it's the first step I recommend for everyone. And then from there, it starts to build. And for every person, that's gonna be a different journey. For me, one of the biggest pieces of control that I felt was when I started negotiating my salary Uh, Not that I have a salary. I'm also kind of freelance business owner, so my rates. But to be able to talk to people about what they're making and then to be able to use that information and walk into negotiation and ask for what I want and be able to back that up with proof points and get it, I mean, man, that was a fantastic feeling. And then from there, you know, I got to say, it's not like I ever feel 100% in control, even today. Uh, You know, I I have clients that don't pay on time. 
It happens. And it's tough because I run a business. I pay other people on time, but I don't get paid on time. So, you know, there, there are still things I'm figuring out. And I think this is another important takeaway is that it's a constant practice. We don't arrive. It's never ending. So I like to think about money and, and figuring it out and feeling in control the same way I do about anything else in, in my self-care routine, whether it's my mental health or my physical health. These things are things I need to check in with and practice and build upon every single day. And I don't just set it and it's done. I don't work out once and it's done. You know, it's the same thing with my money and it's a constant process. And I think that can take away some of that pressure to feel like you have to have it all figured out all at once. Absolutely. I love that you said that because one of the things that I definitely want us to talk about for a little bit anyway, let me look at my time here. Oh, we all right. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, how we talk about rates um, and how we have that conversation. I'm always telling people to talk about rates, talk about money and things like that. That's something new for me as well. That's not something that I came to New York being like, yeah, I bust up in here like BuzzFeed, give me money. You know what I mean? Like It wasn't like that. It was way, way more like learning over time what I was worth um, and having conversations with other people in the industry I'm working in about what they're making when they sign contracts and when they work with those people and also giving them that information too. The people who work in my industry know you come talk to me. If I've written somewhere, come talk to me before you go right there because I'm definitely going to tell you what they paid me. One of the best things that ever happened to me, my first cover that I ever wrote for a magazine um, was actually offered to another writer before me, a writer who I love, but who don't know me from like Adam. Like she might know my work, but she don't know me. We had never met. And when they asked her about doing this, they sent her an offer, a very, very nice offer. And she turned around and CC'd me on a response to them with the offer and everything in it saying, I think Ashley would be a better choice for this person. And that meant I saw how much they offered her. She knew what she was doing. She did it so that I could see how much they offered her so that they couldn't offer me less. There is nothing wrong with that. A lot of people, and I say this all the time to people, the only people who want you to talk about money less are the people who have it and benefit from you having less of it. Those are the only people who want you to talk about money less. It's not rude. It's not taboo. What, what's rude about talking about the thing that really could be the exchange between everybody in this room? You know what I mean? Besides like, you know, I don't know, love. <laughs> but still, like, it's an important thing to talk about. So when I go to a place and I start talking about rates, I've probably already, talk, already talked to somebody who has done work there. I've probably already talked to people about their experience and how much they made and what was the scope of the project. But I also have to sit back sometimes, and I, this is the really hard part that I've learned. Sometimes you have to ask people how they've decided on a rate for you. And that's really uncomfortable. It is really uncomfortable to say, now, when you offer me that, how does that compare to what you offer other writers who write in this space? Or just saying, how did you come up with that number? Easiest, easiest question in the world. How'd you come up with that number? 
There is nothing rude about asking for clarity. And when it comes to your money-making potential, asking for clarity could be one of the biggest, most important things you do. Because how can you advocate for yourself being paid what you're worth when you don't even know how people are valuing you or valuing your work? You got to have that conversation. So, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely uh, saved me in a lot of instances, particularly as I get into podcasting more and, and dealing in the audio world more. When we first started to do the podcast, I asked people, because I had been a guest on other people's podcasts before, and so I went to those hosts that I trusted. You know, we had become friends. So I went to them and I said, what kind of rates should I expect for this type of work? They gave me a list, you know, a range of things that I should be looking for so that I knew that when I got that offer, what was acceptable and what was not acceptable. Um, Excuse me, there was another situation where I had been doing something kind of for free, which was fine. And then this one time I did it, it was a lot more work. And I was just like, no, we can't. I'm not going to do this for free. And so I emailed the person in charge and I said, this is everything that I have done for this particular event. I need to be paid my whatever rate for this. And again, it was very, you know, I didn't have an attitude, which, you know, I think maybe we could talk about like how to approach these kinds of things. Um, But I was just like, you know, it's been great working, doing this, blah, blah, blah. However, there was all of this work, bulleted statements, you know, and how I was, I was explaining this is much more than free. You know, at this point, you can't continue to get free labor for me. And I got paid for that. And again, you know, I was firm. And I have a reputation for sending... Um, um, <laughs> my emails are very... Um, <laughs> I just, I just want to get to the point. They're direct. I, I, I'm direct. I want to get direct. to the point. And something that I'm trying to fight and just on a correspondence level is this idea that when women give a declarative statement, right, a sentence that ends in a period, it should end in a period. I don't have to put an exclamation point to make you feel good about me demanding my money. You know, I don't want to put an emoji. Just checking. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right? <laughs> I don't want to have to just checking. do that. You should be okay with me, you know, stating something and not freaking out. So anyway, so I do, I put, there are a lot of periods in my emails, okay? I'm not going to put exclamation points all over, um, whatever. So my emails tend to be firm, direct, to the point, and sometimes that can be off-putting because people want you to beg for respect. I don't feel like at this point in my life I should have to beg for, for respect. Um, so being in this industry and media making friends with people or at least strong acquaintances, right? Like maybe you're not going to get invited to the wedding, but you're going to get invited to a dinner or something like that. Make those connections so that when you can come to them, I need your help. What is a good rate? You know, you're not necessarily asking them to tell you what they're being paid because that can be tricky, right? But just again, I need your expertise. You can layer it on like that. Like, you know, it's just, oh, you're so wonderful in this industry. Please guide me. You know, Writers let me sit love at your it feet. when you tell us we're an expert. <laughs> we do. And they'd be like, Ashley, you are an expert in Kenny Loggins. Now we'd be like, absolutely. <laughs> A scholar, actually. And would have that whole conversation. Stephanie, I want to make sure we get to you. Yeah, yeah. We have so, a few um, more minutes. I, I think for me is... Uh, 
I feel like when I'm navigating this space, it's a little bit like the wild, wild west. And if it wasn't for some anchors and guides, I would be completely lost. And so there are some spaces, some things I do where I have done it enough times that I make it a point that I am very transparent with anyone else I see in the space who's doing it too. Because I know what it's like to be going out there and have no idea what context you're working with and to completely undersell yourself. And that not only hurts that person, it hurts the whole industry. Because if those people don't know what they should be asking for, that's bringing the average rate down for everyone. And so when I can, when I know the landscape of what I'm doing, I always try to be a champion for other people. And I would say that if you don't work in the freelance world or if you're, if you're not a business owner, if you are more salaried, you got to come back to understanding what the metrics of success are. And that's a way to broach this conversation in a way with your employer that isn't intimidating, that doesn't feel rude, even though it's not rude to talk about money, but you know, not everyone feels that way. So if you can use that language, how do you measure success in this role? Because for some people it's related to the bottom line, but for some people, depending on your position, it's not. It might be related to employee morale. It might be related to initiatives um, that you bring to the workplace and add added value to the workplace. So if you can find out what those metrics are, then you have a benchmark that you can then exceed and then go to your employer and say, here's what was expected. Here's what I've delivered. Here's my kudos folder of all the ways I've been measuring this progress. And then you can back up that ask very reasonably. And then they're a fool not to give you the raise. You know what I'm saying? Real, real dumb to let you go in that situation, which is why I hate to have to let you go. That's Oh, this is not. I want to talk to you guys all day about this, and I want to talk about this all day. You guys have been fantastic. Thank you for your laughs and for your smiles and for your generally attractive faces. My God, I didn't know that there were this many good-looking people in Williamsburg. I'll be back. Thank you guys so much for having us. Nicole Perkins, Stephanie O'Connell. So amazing. So amazing. I'm Ashley C. Ford. This has been sponsored by MasterCard and also obviously on Airfest, which has been amazing. Thank you for having me on Airfest. And maybe I'll see you again next year. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this special bonus episode of Fortune Favors the Bold, a branded podcast from MasterCard and Gimlet Creative. Huge thanks to Ashley C. Ford and to our guests, Nicole Perkins and Stephanie O'Connell. Special thanks to On Air Fest and The Wythe Hotel. Our MasterCard executive producers are Christine Elliott and Marcy Cohen. MasterCard editorial direction from Brooke Capsironi. Our MasterCard producers are Arsalan Donish, Mira Belgrave, and Raina Comet. This episode was engineered by Sam Baer. Technical direction from Zach Schmidt. Our theme is by Bobby Lord. If you remember a time when you realized how money was affecting you or the people around you, or you decided it was time to ask for more, tell us about it. Send an email to Fortune Favors the Bold, fftb at mastercard.com. Thank you again, and we'll see you next time.